3: This is the Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, just enjoying a slice of cake. Uh, now, if you like the idea of getting into our Cabinet room, uh, sadly there will be no refreshments available, you want to come on and play our hugely popular quiz, Can You Get to Number 10? Ten general knowledge questions loosely connected in Cabinet jobs. The more questions you get right, the better job you get, taking your place alongside our listeners and guests. If you make it all the way to, n- to number 10 and get that right, you'll become our show's Prime Minister. And now, everyone who gets in the Cabinet gets a certificate. So if you want to do that, email me now, matt.chorley at times.radio, and we'll get you on the radio and you get yourself a certificate. Who doesn't like a certificate? Uh, If you also want to come and see me live... Uh, I'm uh, on tour from February the 8th, going all around the country, England, Wales, Scotland, all over the place. If you want to come and see me uh, trying to answer the question, who is in charge here? It's not totally clear what the answer to that is going to be. uh, Then you can find uh, details at mattchorley.com. Right, that's enough housekeeping. Coming up on today's episode, as Liz Truss tries to untangle... Disputes over Northern Ireland and the Brexit deal, we ask, are we heading for a United Ireland? Polls suggest people in both Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland think that's where we're heading, so we're going to unpick that in our big thing. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel, and it's Tuesday, so it must be finger Rich.
4: Meet the Cerberus of columnists. The Janus of journalism. And the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's
2: alive! It's alive!
4: Finkelvich, with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich,
3: on Times Radio.
4: Why is it that the, the, <laughs> the words interior designer always make me laugh?
3: It is so funny. I mean, use
4: it as because... cake wife interior designers together and it's almost like you have an episode of absolutely fabulous isn't it or something like it. it's kind of it's it's what's her it's what it's jennifer saunder's
3: falling drunk out of a taxi <laughs> <it's- laughs> we're well, talking of interior design we can see uh, your office there you've got a cushion on your on your sofa what does it say on the cushion it a- says a woman's place is in the white house very good very good and what's that thrown over the back of your sofa Uh, That is the national flag of Albania. (laughs) Is this the work of Lulu Little?
4: It is. Um, (laughs) I I asked her, can you give me something which is kind of eccentric, but somehow kind of falsely intellectual? And she said, no problem at all. I've, I've done work for Boris Johnson.
3: And that pile of sort of, what is that? Is that your gym kit? Dirt, what Dirty washing, what's that on the sofa? Is that all part of the ins- installation? No, no,
4: no, it, it's, not, it's not actually. It's, it's, <laughs> it's part of lockdown um, uh, stuff, you know, kind of you know, elastic, you know, those bands you use for exercise and all that kind of stuff, which in, in lockdown we all had to do, you know, kind of for Zoom uh, Pilates sessions. It's all that <laughs> kind of stuff. And I don't know what to do with it because I'm worried if I throw it away, then we'll get locked down again. And so on. And <laughs> actually, you shouldn't throw it away. You should um but then what I realise is I should have ha- I should have a party with it. That's what you should kind do. Of a lockdown Pilates party. <laughs> is
3: that the sort of thing you want to go to, Danny? <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about we're not gonna talk about parties. What I wanna um I think uh Danny, you suggested this. One of the arguments put forward by the Tory MPs who are trying to uh defend the Prime Minister right now, I think James Gray was making this point in the FT today, uh is that with everything going on in the world? with Ukraine and Russia and so on, now would be a terrible time to remove Boris Johnson. Yes, it's the usual
5: argument about having leadership elections is this is a terrible time. So it'll be it's too close to the last election and the Prime Minister still has a mandate. It's too close to the next election, which means we, if we change the law, they change the leader, there'll be an election. Or we shouldn't do it now because if we do it now, there'll be an election. The other variant of it, which isn't electoral, is uh, this is a moment of crisis. It's the same thing, by the way, when people go on holiday, when Prime Ministers go on holiday... Um, Every year, there's something that means they should be back. And the reason for that is that if you're the prime minister, things happen all the time. Um, So this doesn't seem to me a particularly strong argument that uh, we should continue with crisis ridden leadership we don't trust, uh, because we might need that crisis ridden leadership we don't trust to fight a war. Um, You know, and in previous occasions, we've done it in the middle of these things, as we did indeed with uh, with the Gulf War, for example. That's exactly when Margaret Thatcher fell.
3: And that's the point, isn't it? The, the, the Margaret Thatcher went and John Major took over precisely uh, while Iraq was erupting. And uh, yeah, and and
5: sometimes, by the way, you know, as indeed was the case with Theresa May's resignation, it was necessary because of the big issue. Uh, but in other cases, it's just secondary to it. Uh, You know, a lot of things in politics, it is never it's not the perfect moment because there isn't such a thing as the perfect moment. It just is the moment. Um, So, uh, of course, it would be better if this didn't coincide with all sorts of other big issues. But it just does. And that's nothing to be done
4: about it. I suppose. uh, What what do you think, David? Is there ever a good time to change leaders? I, I presume that the same people are not saying, actually, we should have done it a month ago. That would have been a better time. And we're remiss in not having had a leadership election a month ago. But, now's, but now we've waited too long. It's a particularly bad time. In other words, Dan is absolutely right. It's just a kind of cover for we don't want a leadership election um, uh, because we're dependent upon Boris Johnson. Or at least we've got to say we don't want a leadership election until there is one, at which point we all stand for it or we all declare candidates and we all declare ourselves incredibly happy that our candidate would actually make a very good job of uh, of this situation. And Dan is completely right. I mean, there is a very, very big argument for really just getting on with this leadership election, for getting rid of Boris Johnson. I mean, what you could say is we... Uh, did, trust in him is so uh, scant now that we, almost any uh, significant figure in the Conservative Party, would actually have more... Um, more respect uh, than Boris Johnson would have. And therefore, that's a very good reason for getting on and doing it. You just have to do it fairly quickly. That's all. I mean, with a kind of degree of rapidity. Well, I mean, that would have been an argument for keeping the old MP system because that was a very quick system. I, I like the DUP system where they only have about 14 people get to vote. Um, and it's so, <laughs> not actually I don't really
3: like well, it, but at least at least it provides. But they have, they do have the advantage of if they're not being met very many of them. Um Ke- uh, Danny, Kevin's been in touch saying, so should Winston Churchill have waited until the end of World War II before launching his leadership bid? Yeah, I mean, that was a bit like the other one that I mentioned, the Theresa May one. It was caused by
5: the big issue. Yeah. Um, but clearly, um, ha- having the ability to have uh, new um, leadership can sometimes be a big advantage in crisis as well as a hmm. big disadvantage. Yeah. The crucial point to understand is there's never a moment when the Prime Minister's not doing anything, where it's not... You know, if, for example, this had happened a year ago, you could have said, well, we can't change the Prime Minister because we're in the middle of the COVID crisis. Yeah. Uh, and, and as I say, in a, in a year's time, you could be saying, well, we can't do, uh, change the Prime Minister we're in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis. The, there's always a big challenge. Otherwise, you wouldn't need to bother thinking about who the Prime Minister was because it wouldn't matter that much. The reason it matters that much is because there are these constant issues. And, of course, it's better if there's a sort of moment of total calm uh, when you're making these decisions. But
4: probably (laughs) if there was a moment of total calm, you wouldn't bother with it because everything would be calm. Well, Well, exactly. We're in the middle of a prime minister legitimacy crisis. That's the crisis we're also in the middle of. And until you solve that, it's quite difficult to really take on the other crises, I think it's very important to understand, because I've, several people have said, and
5: I, I, I've had to think about it, because you couldn't—I shouldn't just automatically dismiss it. You know, we shouldn't be going on and on about effectively a birthday cake, and uh, the—you know—we've got the, all these big crises. The reason why. Things like the birthday cake matter and they've been given the prominence they have is because these huge issues require trustworthiness, integrity, a confidence that Downing Street will follow the law, a belief that the right people are being employed on the Prime Minister's staff. It's because of the big issues that these things matter. Of course, a cake uh, isn't the issue. The issue is whether or not. Prime Ministers need to follow the rules that they set. And, of course, that matters in the case of uh, Ukraine. What are we doing in the issue with uh, Putin? We're disputing about liberal democratic norms and how broadly they should follow. Why would we bother doing that if we ignore the question of liberal democratic norms in our own country? So it, it isn't right to say... This all these parties are such a trivial issue compared to Ukraine. They're all part of the same thing, which is the preservation of liberal democratic
3: norms. There's also, David, um, an element of with the Russia-Ukraine... Britain isn't doing anything. I mean, we're putting out statements saying we're very cross about it, but nobody really thinks that Britain... You know, unless, unless you buy into the idea that Britain is one of the great military powers of the world and we're going to go and stand up to you know, we're going to launch a counter-invasion, that's not happening, is it? It's only... It's a, uh- it, it, yeah, this I, idea I mean, of Britain I, being one of the you know joint policemen with America—that's not you know. Boris not, it, not playing a part in it anyway. It's not like he's got Britain, Putin not- on the phones on the speed dial. Yeah, Britain's not a joint policeman, uh, Matt, but actually I do think that the position that
4: Britain takes up is important, and not just because I'm a Brit. Um, I don't say it's the most important or anything like that, but it's as important as the position taken up by France and Germany, and those are important positions to be taken up. And I do think they're important matters of policy, and our diplomacy is part of the diplomatic package, and what we do and what we advise uh, and what we jointly discuss is of actually real significance and that's what makes me worried about the current situation is is really how can somebody like boris johnson undistractedly deal with a crisis uh, like this uh, it's a very big argument for uh, for a rapid leadership change and the, the problem which is being put in our way over this is the idea that you can't do it rapidly you can only do it slowly and therefore you're going to have a period of um uh, 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 when no one can do anything of stasis really um so, uh, actually, uh, Matt, although I, I, I don't, you know, I don't like that kind of business of saying, you know, that kind of boosterism, we're the biggest in the world, we're the best in the world and so on. I do think we have some importance.
3: Well, we'll see how, um, uh, we'll see what happens. As mm-hmm. Steve Swinford, uh, Times' the political editor, has just uh, reported, Sue Gray is now expected to wait until the police carry out their investigations <laughs> before publishing a report. There's concern that publishing the report would effectively pre- prejudge the police investigation. That's so why the Tory Party should act now. Mm-hmm. By mm-hmm. the way, I mean if they possibly could, but they won't. But
4: that's why they should actually go quick. The, the whole business of waiting the Sue Gray report is is a disaster for them. It's an absolute disaster. It's bad for the country, but it's
3: really bad for them. So we've gone from uh, wait for Sue Gray to wait for the police to wait for Sue Gray, and that's going to go on for even longer, Danny. It? it will.
5: Yeah, I and mean, I I think this is that's a very regrettable decision. But I the, the whole thing of waiting for Sue Gray was in any case they tactic. Uh, it seems to me that the, um, there's a great degree of clarity over the fact that the Prime Minister was attending a party that wasn't a work event in his own garden. Uh, there's a great degree of clarity over the fact that that wasn't uh, within the regulations and there's a great deal of tr- clarity that Downing Street held a large number of events each of which were held by the Prime Minister's staff for whom he is accountable and responsible. Uh, so we yeah. know the cru- crucial things. What she um, will rule on will give us a bit more detail. It may give us a little bit of sharpness on uh, questions of rules, but I think we know the, the, basic, um, the basic facts and it's, it's um, debilitating to wait further. I, is- I should point out that the p- people have been putting huge pressure on the Metropolitan Police to, to do what, Cressida Dick has now announced and they'll now be furious that she's doing it Um, and 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 I've always been a bit uncomfortable about the operational um, the operational decisions of the police being intervened in this way Um, I think I think this is this is now got we've now got ourselves into a tangle which was actually entirely predictable Um, let's Uh, move on Can we
4: also now say Danny that there's also clarity about Boris Johnson having misled Parliament on this issue
5: yeah I do think so yes Uh, I don't I don't I mean oddly I don't think the 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 birthday well i don't call it a party as it was the birthday gathering i mean i don't. i think the, i think whether it was a party is irrelevant. The birthday gathering, which was not, within the, not at all within the rules, um, that I, do, I don't think that changes whether or not he um, told the truth to Parliament, but I just think it's obvious that yeah. um, he did understand that it was a part, that it was a social event to which he was going to in the garden, and I, I just have never really believed that particular suggestion.
3: Well, let's, let's just turn our attention, because people are getting in touch saying, why are you talking about cake? Let's talk about somebody who has resigned. Uh, with some uh, drama. Uh, Lord Agnew, who I don't need to tell you, was a Treasury and Cabinet Office Minister. This is what he did yesterday.
6: Schoolboy errors were made, for example, allowing over a thousand companies to receive bounce-back loans that were not even trading when Covid struck. I've been arguing with Treasury and Bayes officials for nearly two years to get them to lift their game. I have been mostly unsuccessful. It is my deeply held conviction that the current state of affairs is not acceptable. Given that I'm the Minister for Counter Fraud, it feels somewhat dishonest to stay on in that role if I'm incapable of doing it properly, let alone defending our track record. It is for this reason that I've sadly decided to tender my resignation as a Minister across the Treasury and Cabinet Office with immediate effect.
3: It was quite a moment, Danny. Do you know, do you know Theo Agnew? I do, yes, because he was a trustee
5: of Policy Exchange, the think tank, and I was its chairman. I think very highly of him. And uh, indeed, there was a moment when his name came into the frame and people said, no, the Tories have appointed a donor to do this job. And I said, no, I think he's a person of great integrity and force in my, in my experience. Also, not much patience uh, with people being incompetent. So I'm not, in enti- this is quite in character, um, but he's a, he's a person who I think has a deep sense of right and wrong and 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 I think it frustrated him uh, greatly that he couldn't get people to take action that he was being given sort of political answers because he's not a a politician. It's an interesting thing, this. I I wonder what David thinks. Uh, I think Theo Agnew's appointment is a bit of a justification for putting people in who are not uh, just merely politicians. Probably a politician would have put up with this. And you've got two things, a plus and a minus. The plus is the politician probably wouldn't have, um, wouldn't have resigned. They'd have carried on trying to do the job. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've now lost a very effective person because he got fed up with it. Uh, but, you know, but on the other side of it, uh, by bringing Theo Agnew into the, uh, into the government, we got somebody who didn't just fall for uh, being given political soft soap, who was a bit tougher than that. Uh, so it, I think he did it did show the value People have questioned, I think, sometimes he's bringing people in from outside. I'm not in favour of the idea that we had a businessman running the country, but I do think some of that experience is helpful in government. And he's probably demonstrated that. He's put up with with less of what I think a politician probably would put up with.
3: It is an extraordinary moment. We talked a lot about this on the show last week, David. Four point three, was it £4.3 billion pounds? It was a fraud that was just being written off? In his resignation letter, Lord Agnew said... Last week, a foolish decision was made to kill off the prospect of an economic crime bill in the third session. This would have enhanced our ability to tackle fraud with further savings of taxpayers' money. If my departure stimulates debate in these areas, leading to coordinated action, it would have been a good day's work. Uh, yeah, that was hopeful, wasn't it, on his part? <laughs> um,
4: <laughs> given everything else that's going on, I, t- t- I have to confess, I've never heard of this chap before he he, he resigned. Um, uh, obviously, from what Danny's been saying, I should have done. I certainly don't take a theological view about whether or not you bring in uh, outside expertise um, uh, to be ministers via... Via a second chamber, even if I don't like the way in which the second chamber is composed, and even if the value of it is enormously diminished by the sheer number of people who are in it at the moment, despite all uh, pl- in fact, his own pleas that it be slimmed down, then I think it would be consistent with that position if at least 200 peers were to voluntarily say well, well actually we shouldn't be peers and we're not doing very much and we should go away now. Uh, and that would certainly help my confidence in somebody <laughs> like Lord Agnew being appointed to the job he's being appointed because that would give me confidence it wasn't a reward uh, to some kind of place person because frankly um the uh, the uh, appointments to the house of lords in the course of the
3: last couple of years are beyond disgraceful some of them daniel finkelstein and of of course you read them both in the times every week just get yourself a digital subscription go to the times.co.uk forward slash times up next are we heading for united ireland
2: You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time
3: for this. What should we make of this?
0: I'm absolutely determined to protect political stability and peace in Northern Ireland.
3: Yeah, that was the Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, speaking yesterday after the latest fruitless talks in Brussels on trying to solve the dispute over the treatment of Northern Ireland in post-Brexit rules. Since the UK left the EU, Northern Ireland has seen a rise in parliamentary violence, including a particularly bad spell in April last year, which saw 90 officers hurt. At the time, unionist leaders linked the violence to simmering loyalist tensions over the Irish sea border imposed as a result of Brexit. But as the sea border and the ongoing lack of solutions mean that the island of Ireland is moving closer to becoming united? In this half hour, we'll speak to MPs from both the DUP and Sinn Féin, and the author of a new book who looks into whether a united Ireland is now inevitable. But first, let's get the uh, latest on the political situation in Northern Ireland. Uh, let's speak to Amanda Ferguson, freelance journalist in Northern Ireland, regular on Disunited Kingdom, which we do on Times Radio every Wednesday at 11 o'clock. Morning, Amanda.
0: Good morning, Matt.
3: We've also got Bill White, who's a polling expert at Lucid Talks, which carries out opinion polling in Ireland, in Northern Ireland. Hi, Bill. Good morning. Uh, Amanda, first of all, explain the background to this. Um, what, where are we in terms of the negotiations uh, over the, uh, the border issue, the border checks, Northern Ireland being treated differently when it comes to custom checks and so on, and the impact that has had on the political conversation in Northern Ireland?
0: Well, I think it should be made clear, Matt, that the, the violence that you referenced took place last year happened for a multitude of reasons yeah. um and, and sort of the, the discontent around uh, the Irish sea border was just one of them. So I think sometimes it will be easy to present that as, you know, there was violence because of the protocol or because of the Brexit protocol whenever it's a slightly more nuanced than that but you know from whenever I'm talking on your program it's always complicated uh, whenever it comes to Northern Ireland. I think that uh, unionism uh, political leaders anyway broadly despise uh, the protocol because they don't view that the Brexit uh, that the UK has achieved um, is the same in Northern Ireland as it is uh, for GB and they're unhappy about that. A lot of the discontent amongst unionism is based on perception rather than reality and if you talk Uh, To political parties uh, that that are are at Stormont, the unionist parties are unhappy with the protocol whereas the the parties who are not unionist parties will say that the protocol mitigates against the worst impacts of Brexit that Northern Ireland didn't vote for Brexit in the first place and that there was always going to have to be some unique arrangement uh, for for our part of the world because of the unique position that Northern Ireland holds within the United Kingdom and Ireland. So it's definitely the conversation we're having today is the conversation that all of us uh, in the north of Ireland or Northern Ireland, however you choose to describe this part of the world, pretty much have every single day. It's <laughs> non-stop discussion about the future status of Northern Ireland, about whether it's going to remain part of the United Kingdom or whether uh, there's going to be a new Ireland created.
3: Um, and let's bring in Bill on that. Where what is what are polls telling us um, about attitudes toward you know within Northern Ireland about you know, creating a United Ireland, remaining part of the UK, and and has there been a change in that over the last sort of months and years?
7: Uh, well, yes, there has been a change. Um, I mean, there are regular polling now going on um, before the EU referendum. I mean, it, it just shows you the change in the in the narrative. I remember running a poll with the Belfast Telegraph in 2014 and they stuck it on page seven. They, you know, they uh, it wasn't big news then. And the demand for running Northern Ireland border polls, interestingly, before the 2016 EU referendum, uh, was very, very low, and the number of polls in this issue used to be one poll every three or four years. Since then, there has been regular polling uh, by ourselves, not least by ourselves, but also by companies like Savannah Comres, Cantar, Servation, uh, the Liverpool surveys, the Northern Ireland Life and Times. And actually, we a, last year, we ran a uh, average poll of polls just to get a feel for where the uh, situation is. And it's coming in. One of the is in all the polling in 95%, to 100% of the polling is that the pro-Northern uh, pro Ireland saying in the UK score, the pro-union score, UK union score, is running at about 50%. The other 50%, there's a slight variation in the polls in that we, yes, Lucid Talk, we have a higher proportion supporting a United Ireland within that 50%. We have it broadly at 50%, pro-Northern Ireland staying in the UK, like all the other polls. That's one of the constants in the polling. It's the other 50%, as I've just said, is where the difference comes in. We are around the early 40s, pro-United Ireland, and then obviously making up the 100%. That means 10% don't know. Some of the other polls are down towards the 35%, Cantar, Cervantes, Comrades. 15% 15% don't know, but again they're coming in at the 50% pro-Northern Ireland of the UK, so there's a constant there, but it shows the variation in the other pro-United Ireland side, which is probably not surprising because let's take into account people know Northern Ireland, it's in the UK, it's the you know, the, the British um, culture and still within Northern Ireland etc, of course that's obviously um, uh, you know, <laughs> up for dispute in all sorts of other ways, but the united ireland what it is how it would work that is all a big unknown so it's not surprising that there is a variation from people who support a united ireland and then maybe when they're polled a few months later they go back into the don't know camp and then they maybe move towards the united ireland. they may have an aspiration towards the united ireland but a large chunk of people who would be pro that aspiration still would like to know a little bit of more detail about how United Ireland would work, so broadly the scores are fifty percent pro northern Ireland staying in the u k thirty five to forty percent pro united Ireland ten to fifteen percent don 't know that
3: 's roughly yeah. approximately where the polls are coming in and how closely tied is support for remaining in the u k for instance tied to how the unionist parties are doing because Um, You know, particularly the DUP have taken a hammering in the polls uh, recently, uh, in part because, you know, they backed Brexit. Northern Ireland didn't back Brexit. Um, Some people have seen that the the settlement, the Northern Ireland protocol hasn't worked particularly well for Northern Ireland. So sort of their personal, uh, you know, political um, fortunes. Is that is there sort of a a read across there in the same way that if Nicola Sturgeon is doing very well in the polls, we tend to see. Uh, support for independence going up. Is there that link? Is, is it sort of, if the unionists or the nationalists are doing well, does that, does that shift or are the two things separate demands of people in Northern Ireland?
7: It's a little bit more separate and a little bit more complex in Northern Ireland. First of all, you have one SNP in Scotland, um, you know, very strong, yeah, of course. Um, cohesive party. Um, Northern Ireland, we've splits in the unionist camp, the DUP, the Ulster Unionist Party, the UUP, then the increasingly popular TUV traditional unionist vote. Now they would all, obviously, their supporters, 99.9% would vote for Northern Ireland to stay in the UK and a Northern Ireland border poll. It's also complicated in that we've a fairly strong middle ground party called the Alliance Party. Um, and, the, you know, it's, a border poll could come down how they vote in a border poll their voters I mean their supporter base and how the Green Party supporters and their voter base would vote in a border poll and we do analyze that as well and that is um, splitting maybe 55 60% pro-union 30% pro-united Ireland so it's uh, but that varies from poll to poll as well as people change their minds etc about uh, united Ireland and how it would work so it's more complex than that it's not linked specifically to the unionist parties it's more complex
3: than that and uh, Amanda Ferguson are is this part of the political debate are political you know we've got Northern Ireland elections coming up uh this May is this part of what politicians I mean clearly it's an endless part of what they talk about in Scotland uh Scotland leaving uh the UK um is this part of political conversation is there someone really pushing this as a thing
0: the, the insecurity about the future status of Northern Ireland is at the heart of every single political row, every discussion that we see unfolding. Now, my assessment will be that Irish unity would be a matter uh, of when rather than if. And I don't think that it will be something that happens in the immediate short term, but I believe it will happen in the in the medium to long term. Because what we're seeing at the moment is Northern Ireland dividing roughly into thirds. There are three blocks, there are the Irish Republican Nationalists, the British Uh, unionists and then this third block which we describe uh, as other so that's across community parties who haven't taken a constitutional position such as the the green party or the alliance party but just to be extra complicated their voters (laughs) will include people who are republicans (laughs) or unionists but who just don't feel the need to vote for a republican Unionist party at present
3: they're not tribal and they might want to vote for the greens for other reasons because they think that other things are more important it's um, really good to uh, speak to you both. Uh, that's Amanda Ferguson there, a freelance journalist in Northern Ireland, and who you can often hear on a Wednesday when you do, do Disunited Kingdom when we bring you political news in the four corners of the UK. Also really good to speak to Bill White, a polling expert at Lucid Talks. Let's now speak to Kevin Marr, former special advisor to Sean Woodward when he was the Northern Ireland Secretary in the Labour government. Kevin's also written a new book, A United Ireland, Why Unification is Inevitable and How It Will Come About. Hi, Kevin. Morning, Matt. So, why is unification inevitable and how will it come about without giving away all the spoilers in your book?
6: (laughs) The the butler did it. Um, It's it's a combination of factors. I just just look at this kind of from... um, The eastern side of the Irish scene, you just look at the variables and you just think they're only going to go in one direction. Election results, the demographics that are changing in in Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland is built in 1921, six counties cleaved out of the historic county of Ulster to provide an inbuilt Protestant Unionist majority. That is likely to change in the next census. We may get those figures even in the next month or so. So that's going to be a real inflection point if there is, for the first time in 100 years, uh, a over and a majority of people from a Catholic nationalist tradition. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily automatically they're all going to back a United Ireland, but it is emblematic of, of significant change. As I say, the election results, we've got the assembly election result, Assembly elections coming up again in May. If you look at the last set, of assembly elections in in 2017 and you tot up the votes for parties that broadly support irish unity and parties that support the union the gaps of it 30,000 votes i mean this is nothing really you know Sinn fein was 1100 votes behind the dup in 2017 it's likely to top the poll in may which will send shock waves through through the system and um, we've seen a role reversal on the island of ireland you know that the kind of agrarian um, under, underdeveloped south of Ireland versus the kind of industrial dynamic north of Ireland, which was the kind of characterisation at the time of partition. That's been completely reversed. Northern Ireland is a sclerotic economy. Very low value, very low productivity. Southern economy absolutely booming, fastest growing in the EU. Twenty percent growth this year. Massive development in things like financial services, technology, pharmaceuticals, and what have you. It's one of the most dynamic economies in the world. Northern Ireland would benefit enormously from being part of of that settlement. You look at Scottish independence, the kind of. The centrifugal forces in the British state, which, which we, you know, perhaps um, people in, in Northern Ireland are not quite as aware of, the development of, of kind of English grievances around around, around a lack of levelling up. Um, it's Scottish independence poised again for a second tilt in independence. You look at Brexit, the impacts of Brexit, the fact that Northern Ireland loses £600 million a year from the European Union in structural funds and farm payments. It's had a massive hit to its, to its, to its growth and GDP as well and then of course we've got the row over, over, over the protocol and underlying all of this wrapped around all of this is just the most profound British indifference about Northern Ireland. Yeah. We're just not that bothered about it. Every poll shows this. Polls throughout the Troubles showed large large sections of the British public just quite happy to see the back of the place and, that, and that's carried on through in, into the modern age. I, I so, remember
3: so, it sort of successive editors it varied, not I have to say, well, I've been at the times, but other other places have told you know when pitching stories, this thing's happening in Northern Ireland. You know, just being told it's boring, nobody cares. I mean, I do think actually partly because the political parties are different. So if you're seeing everything through a uh, political thing, it's just it just feels like another world, and you just um, ignore it. It's, you- it's a
6: faraway place of which we know and care little.
3: This exactly, and it's complicated. Proof. So let's not get our hands it is heads about it. So we'll sort of move around. Kevin, do you think, from what you're saying, do you think that um, Scottish independence is a, a major requirement in to on on the path to irish re- reunification
6: i think it's going to be very difficult for any british government sat in westminster to have two major constitutional fires burning at the same time i think that that that's going to be very difficult to manage and it may well be you know you look at the state of the scottish labour party it's you know it's stone cold dead you look at the scottish tories they obviously drop back support um in the last general election, you know that th- that issue is not going to go away, and, and I think that there's a lot of wishful thinking that if Nicola Sturgeon was not part of the scene, that the SNP would drop back, and that that's just not going to happen. I think it's I think it's I think there's something that's quite profound. And I think this this is the kind of uh, parallel a little bit with Brexit that it's massively invigorating to be at a moment in history where a new state comes into being, and I think that's why a lot of the pocketbook issues that, that were thrown at Scottish voters back in 2014 just did not have any effect. You know, it, it, just, it just didn't work. And I think, I think we're, we're in that moment where, where people really pride these moments of, of, of national renewal, um, to, to put it in, in, a, in, a, in a slightly a slightly kind of you know, highfalutin sense. But that will apply, I think, very much um, in Northern Ireland as well. As this issue continues to gain traction, um, those kind of don't knows, and those people who are persuadable and open to the opportunities that United Ireland might bring, if they're properly articulated, then I think some of those do not know that Bill was talking about a moment ago will come into the column of, of backing um, Irish unity. And and it's very much framed by campaigners there as building a new island. It's not a case of just bolting on Northern Ireland into the Republic and and and, and, and that being it. It's about a moment of, again, national renewal for the whole of Ireland.
3: And I mentioned that you, you worked for Sean Woodward when he was uh, Secretary of State for Northern Ireland at the end of the Gordon Brown uh, government. How much thought, concern, worry... Time did you spend even thinking about the prospect of uh, a united island? What was that I just, I don't t- think it was Ten, ten, on... twelve 10 12 years ago?
6: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I don't think it was on the agenda to, to be honest. I mean, that, that in, in those days it was about getting the final part of the Good Friday Agreement settlement around policing and judicial powers to, to kind of land. And, and it, was, it was fascinating just at that point, I guess, in 2010. Again, just in Westminster, you know, there's just a a massive lack of lack of interest in everything to do with Northern Ireland. There's an assumption that the Good Friday Agreement is signed. Hey, presto. Great. That's a great, great day's work. Um, Crack on and and we'll we'll kind of ignore you again. And of course, the Good Friday Agreement is, is a process and it is a continual process and baked into the Good Friday Agreement is a guarantee of a border poll, a referendum on Northern Ireland's constitutional status, if it appears likely to the Secretary of State, this is how it's described in the the agreement, that that a majority would want to to join a united Ireland. So so that's why you've got Republicans and nationalists at the table, um, looking to pursue that as a long term objective, but we, we've got to recognize we're 20, nearly 24 years on from the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, um, there's been a, an attempt in this period to kind of make Northern Ireland work. But I mean, the, the bold truth of it is Northern Ireland is never going to work. This is the best that Northern Ireland has ever been governed, and it's pretty much a disaster all the time the devolved the devolved uh, bodies have only sat for half the time since since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, but it is still infinitely preferable to everything that went on in Northern Ireland before thirty odd years of the troubles and fifty years of disgraceful unionist misrule uh, at Stormont uh, for those first fifty years where, where again Britain you know paid scant regard to what was going on, and questions could not even be asked in the House of Commons about what was going on in northern ireland so 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 Dreadful, a dreadful first half century, a dreadful next 30 years and 20 years where where the politics ain't great, but it's infinitely preferable to what's gone on before. And this is as good as it gets in Northern Ireland. So, So I think there's a lot of people starting to say what when we talk of a new island, this idea of a new island, it can't be any worse than what we've got in Northern Ireland, which is a dysfunctional politics, which is a broken economy and which is a divided society.
3: Kevin, uh, stay with us, because you might want to chip in with our next two guests. We've got two MPs, one from either side uh, of the debate on this. Uh, Ian Paisley Jr., DUP MP for North Antrim. Morning, Ian. Good morning, Mark. And we've also got John Finucane, uh, the Sinn Féin MP for North Belfast. Hi, John. Good morning. Um, Ian Paisley Jr., I've been listening to the conversation we've been having. Is, from your perspective as a unit uh, representing unionist party, is a United Ireland
1: inevitable? Um, Well, good morning. Good morning to your your guests, Matt. Um, No, United Ireland isn't inevitable, um, but I'm not complacent about the challenges that face uh, this region. I'm very interested in Kevin's analysis. Uh, I think it's very surprising. He, he presents a, an English nationalist um, uh, analysis. He, his arguments are Anglified, sectarian, snobbery against the regions. I'd say, I'd say that if he was asked to write the same thing about Scotland, he would do the same thing. He was asked to write even the same thing about Wales or even parts of the North you would probably do the, 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 the same thing and take the same sort of attitude that this kind of London-centric, Angl- Anglified view of, of life and therefore everyone else doesn't matter. I mean, we see it from one perspective, but of course. The United Kingdom and Britishness is made up of a much more eclectic view and a view which I'm not British because an Englishman allows me to be British and passes that down to me. I'm British as of right because I have self-determined to be British. And uh, I think that that's something which maybe Kevin's mind hasn't been able to actually get get around. And uh, I, I also think that the economic analysis, which he, he went over briefly, uh, appears to be rather superficial and inadequate. And I can make a, a very serious point. And if you could give me just a room to do it, because people may not like unionists per se, and they may have elections vote uh, and split their vote with regards to unionists. But when it comes to the union, the union collects a much wider a collective beyond what the unionist parties reach because of the economic and indeed sometimes emotional or a mixture of both of what that means. So so what does it mean in in stark economic terms? First of all, Northern Ireland is part of the fifth largest economy of the world. It is a tax and subvention public sector based economy, which delivers less than 5% unemployment to the people. And as a result, the standard of living, according to Cambridge University analysis, is twenty percent higher than the rest of the United Kingdom. And just yesterday, the leader of the SDLP said that his mother, his own mother, would have problems voting for United Ireland because of the NHS and the welfare state, something which is completely absent in the okay. well, Ireland. What? If I, just, I just make the other side of the coin and sorry Matthew, I really do appreciate you giving me the time because I think it will help the, the actual debate because in the Republic of Ireland the levels of unemployment are approaching 20%. It is the poorest region of the british isles it was the poorest region of the british isles when it left the united kingdom 100 years ago and after 100 years of independence and 45 years of membership of the eu it remains the poorest region of the british isles with 20 percent higher cost of living Uh, and uh, it also indicates very strongly to me The very obvious question, if you have a tax haven economy compared to an economy which is part of the United Kingdom's economy, uniting those two economies is almost impossible. Okay,
3: Ian, I need to make sure my other guests get a chance to come in. Kevin, briefly, do you want to respond to Ian's uh, criticism of your analysis? And I'll bring John
6: in. I mean, I don't know where to begin, but I'll be very, very brief. I'm not taking any lectures from, about sectarianism from a man like Ian Paisley and his father. Let me just say that for a start. Ireland's got the Republic of Ireland's got the second highest living standards in the world, according to the United Nations. It's got the fastest growing economy in the European Union at 20 percent this year. Um, this kind of this kind of snooty unionist view that Southern Ireland is kind of some agrarian kind of backwater is so off the pace. It's untrue.
3: Thank you, Kevin. Uh, let's go to John. John Van Nuys, Sinn Fein MP. Um, do you think that unification is inevitable?
2: Well, I, I again, I, I must start by challenging some of the figures that were trotted out by Ian Paisley. There, uh, again, they, they quite simply aren't true. Um, and before I answer your question, I think that the economic argument is a very important one because people. Um, I think you asked some of the contributors earlier on how much this dominates politics uh, and the day-to-day issues in the north. People look at our health service, uh, people look at how much disposable income they have, they look at the disparity in wages between the north and the south and what runs through all of that as a constant is people looking to the future And having an ambition for a better future and when you see the likes of public sector workers if you're in the police or a teacher earning ten thousand pounds less or having less of a disposable income uh, we have some of the highest levels of credit card and other forms of debt in these islands and some of the worst rates of children's poverty i think people are rightfully looking to the future and there are those in either side who will say that no matter what they will wish to remain part of the union or that they will wish to have a united ireland but there are those as a result of triggers like Brexit, who are looking to the future and who may previously not have thought about the constitutional future for themselves and their families, are now seriously asking the question, what would this mean for me? And I think the space that we are in at the minute is that we need to have a debate that is informed, that is fact-checked, and that is responsible. And I think that Brexit has shown us, this has trotted out quite a lot, but it's true, it's shown us how not to do things. And it's why we in Sinn Féin believe that... Uh, Change on the island is inevitable. But what is possibly more important is that we must manage that. And it's how we get to that point, which is key, because this will be in New Ireland. It's not necessarily uh, having to be at each other's throats or rubbing out a line on a map, which has been disastrous for the island. It is about having the conversation and being informed so that people are very clear about what it is they are voting for and what it is they are voting against when the time comes to have that referendum because and i'll finish with this very briefly because the 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 way in which this is achieved has been set out in the good friday agreement and, and there's a slightly ambiguous test that will that will have to be applied by a Secretary of State, and it's if it uh, appears to him or her that the majority of people uh, want unity, you know, then a poll must be called. So what are these triggers? What are the indicators? Um, Kevin has already referenced the census results that are coming out. Even in the last Westminster election, for the first time in the history of the North's jurisdiction, The majority of MPs returned to Westminster support a united Ireland. So there are multiple indicators all around us. And I think there's a responsibility, not just on parties, but particularly the Irish government as well, that they need to now bring this conversation to the next level uh, and and have it, uh, I think, attach resources to that as well.
3: Um, Just fine. I want to come back to you, Ian Paisley, because you you mentioned you were were trying to sort of draw the distinction between the day-to-day support for unionist parties and overall support for unionism. Are you concerned that the DUP support for Brexit, which has led to problems for Northern Ireland, uh, and uh, has led to a drop, actually, in support for the DUP? I mean, the most recent... Um, we had Lucid, Bill from Lucid Talks on. most recent one, the DUP, were down to 18% in the polls, having been on 28% back in 2017. Jeffrey, so, Jeffrey Donaldson, your leader, 66% of people thought he was bad or awful. Are you concerned that... The, the, the political underperformance of your party and your leader, Jeffrey Johnson, is actually helping to pave the way towards a united Ireland.
1: No, I don't. And I, as I said, I think the fluctuations of the support for individual political parties, and our know, unionism is divided into a multifarious of at least three parties and a number of independents. But on the big question of the union, there is, there is unity on the opposition to the protocol, for example, there is unity. I know that's not the debate we want to go down, but i mean focusing on the issue of the economy. Um, and Kevin can't get away from this. You know, the difference between being part of the fifth largest economy in the world and being part of, I think, the 35th largest economy in the world, is miles apart. It's significant. The the issue, he says, uh, of some sort of uh, view of the Republic of Ireland, which is backward in rural, and probably in the Republic of Ireland, far more than Kevin is, and and I know very well the economy. But according to um, uh, the the Cambridge analysis that was produced a matter of months ago, and, and last time I checked, that was written in England by an English person, and um, that game that, uh, has indicated that it's 20% higher cost of living. OK, in- I
3: feel like we're slightly going around in circles there. We're going
1: to have to leave it there,
3: unfortunately. As ever, this is a debate which will uh, run in one. That was Ian Paisley Jr., the uh, DUP MP for North Antrim. We also heard from John Funikane, the uh, Sinn Féin MP for North Belfast. Uh, Kevin Ma is the author of A United Island, Why Unification is Inevitable and How It Will Come About. Uh, we've had quite a mixed bag of response to that. Uh, Some people saying, great debate, a brilliant debate around a united eye. Well worth a listen, says Stuart. And Henry says, uh, three terrible people on the show. Uh, (laughs) Make of that one. Let's have a debate about the quality of the debate. Uh, One of the points that several of you have made is what does the Republic of Ireland actually make of this? Um, There's a limited number of people we can have on in half an hour, and it's something we will return to. I think definitely those census figures that um, uh, Kevin was talking about. Uh, it's definitely worth uh, having a look at, but we thought it was an interesting issue, uh, given all the debate about the Northern Ireland Protocol. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget, you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, ten till one, on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast, and if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from.